Welcome to the WA Property Q&A, the podcast where I explore the ins and outs of buying property in Western Australia. I'm your host, Peter Fletcher, and each week I interview local property experts to help you to develop a deep understanding of the nuances of buying property in WA. From market trends to legal considerations, no topic is off limits. But before we dive in, a friendly reminder, while we provide valuable information, it's important to note that nothing discussed in this podcast should be construed as personal investment advice. Always remember to seek the appropriate professional advice for your specific circumstances. Now, let's get started and unlock the secrets to successful property buying in WA. Welcome to another episode of the WA Property Q&A. I'm your host, Peter Fletcher, and with me today is none other than Franka Jankowski. Now, Franka is a much-loved member of our conveyancing team, has been with the uh, Resi conveyancing team for uh, seven years now. I think that's right, Franka? Six. Six. Six, Over six, yeah. Yeah, coming up to seven. (laughs) Yep. And... um, Today, I wanted to get Franka on the show to uh, talk about filling out the offer and acceptance and all the, the traps and pitfalls and mistakes that real estate agents especially make in, in filling out the offer and acceptance and the problems that that can cause. Before we get going, just got to say that Franka has uh, an unusual uh, claim to fame. She is one of the very few conveyances who can say they've been a conveyancer in two countries. So um, prior to Australia, uh, prior to conveyancing in Perth, um, Franka, you were a conveyancer in California, is that right? That's that's right, yep. And over there, it's not, not actually called a conveyancer? No, it's escrow. Yeah. So I was a certified escrow officer for about 15 years. 15 years, yeah. Yeah, okay. Just give us a bit of an idea as to how the, the process differs between Australia and America. Just uh, well, escrow there is really a term as far as a, it's a fiduciary third party and a stakeholder for both the uh, buyer and the seller. So you will transact for both parties over there, but you will not act for them as, an, as like an agent like you would, you would hear. So um, the real estate agents basically take that role on. So they'll have a buyer's agent and a seller's agent and they will actually negotiate the, the transaction for them. And um, we are just basically... A, like I said, a stakeholder in the sense that we will hold the, the funds and the documentations and so forth, but we don't get involved in the uh, negotiations between the parties if there was an issue. And they don't have um, the Torrens title system? No. In California, it's a deed system. So you have to prove good title to the property stretching back to? They do, but that's done via title insurance because over there there is no uh, land registry such as land gators here. It's all been... Um, they're all registered with the, uh, with the local counties and their jurisdictions. And, um, yeah, title insurance is what they have to have in order to be able to, to transfer title. That is such a can of worms. My God, our system over here is so good. It is. Yeah, it is. But the only problem here is that if you did have a fraudulent transaction that resulted in the property being transferred to a party, the, the buyer ultimately gets that property and the seller loses out because they can't reverse that transaction mm. where with a deed system if that was to happen they can back deed mm. so it can be unraveled and that transaction could be you know not involved mm-hmm. um, if a fraud was to happen but so there, there is goods and bads I guess let's talk about the re offer and acceptance mm. 
of all the transactions that come across your desk, how many of them would not involve a re or offer and acceptance? Oh, very few. Yeah. Very few, yeah. Less than 1%. Yeah. So mm. almost none. Mm. Okay. So getting the, the re or offer and acceptance right is a pretty important part yeah, of, sure. of the process. So I've brought in a REWA O&A, and we just start from the start, and that is getting the names right. Now, if if I go come to you and or like I, I go to the real estate agent, and my name is Petro Flores Xavier Fletcher, and I say to them, "Look, can we just put it down as Peter Fletcher for the time being? Is that a, is that okay to do that?" Well, there's going to be a problem with your. Um Two folds application that you're going to be putting in if you're obtaining a loan, mm-hmm. um, because they are going to require that your name be exactly how your it is on your IDs, because you're going to be verified by the bank. And the same said, you're going to be verified by the settlement agent also. And technically, your names need to match your IDs for it to um, correlate with the application. And even so, if you're not getting that loan, you would need to have that um, as proof that you're who you are. And um, have that right title uh, going down the track. Mm. So uh, it's very important. And also important it is um, to find out exactly what part of your name is your last name and your first names. Because we do get a lot of contracts that don't have underlining factors. And so we may have a client and we are dealing with a lot of nationalities now. Um, and they all have different names. And the way they hold names is very, very different to um, you know, Western to Eastern names. And that's really important to know what part of that name is a surname or if they may not have a surname, they might go with the first name and vice versa. It would just be a first name and no surnames. And we really need to know. Why is that? What, why do we need to know? Well, we need to make sure that the title is accurately recorded with their names as it should be appear as per their IDs. Is there a problem with the Office of State Revenue and stamping the contract if, if the name's wrong? It, it could cause a problem there uh, more so, but... It's only if it's a, a completely different name, so much more than if, if it is incorrectly maybe shown on the contract as far as maybe not the full names, they can vary that contract to, to clarify it and that shouldn't be a problem with that part. Uh, it, only, it won't be a stamping issue, mm-hmm. but more so I think from a financial point of view, the contract needs, needs to match the application and you, we, what we find is if it doesn't get addressed at point of um, when the documents, loan documents get verified by the bank, they could stop that transaction because they are seeing that the name of the, the parties from their IDs don't match what's on the contract and will call for that amendment to that contract at that stage. So you kind of want to pick that up as soon as possible in the early stages so that you don't get stuck at the end and that could hold up your settlement. So if you were saying to a real estate agent, what, what's the best way to handle this? What would you be saying to them? Uh, check their IDs when they, uh, you know, at the moment I'm seeing that there are um, a lot of agents are putting in um, forms to the potential buyers um, for them to put their offer in. So they will send them a questionnaire essentially and it will say name and address and so forth in terms. But some of them are quite not clear. They'll just say your name, but not say your name as per your identifications. So you could get, uh, my name's Francesca legally, I go by Franca. I might not think twice and put Frank and Jankowski. That's how I write everything in without actually thinking, oh, yeah, I need to put my whole, all my names as, per, as, it, as it appears on my IDs. And that can cause a problem because the agents are not following up on that and they'll just copy that straight across to the contracts. And we've got buyers that are just signing contracts that don't even think and look at their names and 
they may have a mi- middle name missing out of that, or they have an extra name that doesn't appear on any of the records, but it could be, a, say, a sponsor name or a confirmation name that they maybe use, you know, from day to day, but it's not an official name either. So that's really important that those get done correctly mm-hmm. from the start. Mm. And we, we had one recently where the name was a, was a, a forward slash, is that right? Yeah. It, it was a D um, slash O, D yeah. slash o yeah. which stood for daughter of. Correct. And uh, that that's a that's a relevant like that was on their IDs, yeah, on their IDs, mm. and uh, you know, that, that that's the what it should be on the on the contract, correct? Right. Yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, because the contract is is the source document that flows from the contract all the way through to what goes on the land registry. Exactly. Yeah. What about if somebody's changed their name? Yeah, we get that with um, sellers. Mm-hmm. So sellers could have had property in a maiden name or another name and they've changed names since. So the contract technically should be written up in their current name as per the ID. Again, the real estate agent should be asking for those ID checks and then noting the contract correctly as the names appear now. And then they provide the evidence, um, be it a certificate to change of name certificate or a marriage certificate, a deed um, of some sort that supports it. And generally, through a settlement process with the sellers, uh, we would do a statutory declaration to confirm that the name on the title is the same person as we are IDing mm-hmm. and how they sign their contract. But we do get a lot of contracts that real estate agents still will pull through information from the current title. Straight from the title. They put, from the title. And they'll put yeah. their, even the address as they were, where they lived, and, and not really put in the current information, which is then kind of, yeah, gives us doesn't give us the correct information when we get that contract in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's a there's a lot of stuff that flows through from when we see a name on the contract that differs what's on the title. Instantly, we mm. know that there's been a name change, or there's likely been a name change, and therefore there's a whole bunch mm. of other work that needs to be done mm-hmm. before settlement goes through. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. And uh, one further to this is also you might have a a deceased seller mm-hmm. on the title. Uh, or an out- enduring power of attorney is being used, but that correct that information's not been um, forwarded mm-hmm. onto the contract. So uh, that sometimes can also have uh, need clarifications as far as who is this person signing on behalf of, and um, why is there only one signature and not two? Because there's uh, no notation anywhere to say or information given to us that there is a possibly deceased party. So, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's really important that the real estate agent finds out who they're talking to mm. and and what their actual name is. Mm. And if somebody else is signing on behalf of that party, what's their capacity? Mm. Are you a, you know, like an executor? Are you a, a just, you know, if you're a, a EPA, like enduring power of attorney, mm. who, what is your role if it's not the person that's on the title itself? Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Mm. Going back to the buyer's name on, on the title, so somebody – uh, rolls up to a real estate agent and says, oh, I want to make an offer, but uh, we're not sure what name to put the the type, the the, uh, mm-hmm. the the offer in. What's your advice to them? Well, if it's a trust situation or, um, you know, even an individual name, it's probably best that they seek some financial advice, either from an accountant or their financial planner, to find out what um, suits them and for what purposes they're purchasing this property for. If it's an investment property, if it's a residential, which, um, you know, 
they would probably need to make sure that they're buying in the in the right entities from the get go, so that there's no changes later on. Yep. So let's say somebody they decided, well, we want to put it in one name, but mm. later on they go, oh, the accountant has said we need to put it in another name. Mm-hmm. Can that be done easily? It can be done easily if the other party that's been added or um, is a related party to that person uh, via a, a transfer, a substitution um, form. Mm-hmm. And that's so when, when we're talking related party, there's, a, there's definitions around related parties. Right. It's not just a cousin or a nephew or something like that, is it? It has to, well, it needs to be blood related or business related in a sense. There is going to be a scope of, um, of uh, tenancy between them mm-hmm. itself, a relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, husband and wife, mm-hmm. okay. Yep. Um, but uh, if it's your best friend or. No, yeah. no, it needs to be a blood, in a bloodline mm-hmm. on those. Yep. Okay. So if it's comes through and it's got like completely wrong, like they put it in, in the name of a company and it needs to be in the name of like a, an individual or some, you know, some, something random like that. Is it, can it cause a bigger problem as in double stamp duty, that sort of thing? Yeah, it can do because it can be uh, viewed as a non-sale mm-hmm. and that would be um, a determination by the revenue office. Um, so the documentation would have to go across to them. So if we had gotten a contract and it was one name and they, they said, oh, no, it needed to be this way, they would have to provide the evidence to the Office of State Revenue as to why it's not an on-purchase and what and the relationships are. So they would make that determination. And they've got to prove that it's not. Correct. And it's it's not the other way that where the Office of State Revenue has to prove that it is. It's, they've got to prove that it's not. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Now, we get a lot of Eastern States accountants coming in and saying, well, just put it in the name of the trust. And the trust is, uh, you know, in our case, it might be the Fletcher Family Trust, for example. Mm -hmm. Just put it in the name of Fletcher Family Trust. Can that be done here? Uh, No, because the trust itself cannot hold, not legally able to hold title. Mm. So they will have a, they will need to have a trustee, it would be an individual or a company that's Mm. been appointed through the trustee. And they also need to make sure that that trustee is actually active at point of offer, that it's not created post that, because that could be a problem also. That's a so, problem. Yeah, yeah. So generally we'd like to see copies of deeds so that we can establish that that was definitely in place. Yep, yep. And, uh, and what type of deed that we're dealing with also. Yep. The, the accountants in the East, they go, well, there's, there's no problems over here. We can, we can put it in the name of a, a trust. But in WA, you can only put it in the name, well, as, as far as I understand it, because that's the, the sort of advice that I hear. In WA, you can only put it in the name of a proprietary limited company or an individual. I, or, I believe that's across Australia. That's across Australia. Australia not it? just yeah. WA. Yeah. So why, why are accountants, why do they say this stuff to us? I don't understand I know they do things a lot differently in the Eastern States, but I think they still have the same uh, requirements mm-hmm. as they do here in, when it comes to that. And it de- also, again, depends on the super. that it, you know If it's a super and how it's been set up, if it's a custodian, if it's a bed trust. I mean, there's so many different trusts now that we've got to deal with. And, um, yeah, they've got to provide their clients with the correct information for the state that they're purchasing property in. Yeah, so for, for um, super funds, it gets really complex, doesn't it? Sure. It's, um, you know, like there's a lot to, that goes on that, on that contract mm. that needs to be spot on. 
Otherwise, it has to get unraveled. Is that right? Well, I don't know if you can unravel it too much once it's already been signed. But, yeah, um, yeah the issues are around whether they're borrowing it uh, as a cash transaction and they can buy directly from the super. Um, or they've got to get a loan, in which case they need a custodian and a fair trust set up in a, that situation. And it, it also makes our transactions a lot different, how we handle the settlements for those type of transactions too. So mm-hmm. we have to have them correct from the start to mm. avoid any issues again without having to get revenue uh, WA involved in um, trying to, um, you know, determinations of stamp duty implications if things have to change midstream. So for the real estate agents that just go, oh, look, just chuck anything on there, we'll just put a deal together. Um, and then where we have to go and unravel it all and, you know, make all these changes and, and variations to the contract, what's the experience like for the, for the buyer? What's that like? Well, it, it's, it is not good. You know, it, it can delay and frustrate the transaction. And then they could be up for additional stamp duty, which adds a lot of stress. Mm. to that, uh, that experience. But from the beginning, if there is a, um, a notation that it might go into trust, the best you know, possible thing to do is to get legal advice mm. or you know, financial advice, at least from your accountant, to make sure that you're writing that contract, that offer has been written up in the right name. And the real estate agent should also be following up to make sure that they have the correct information and not just relying on uh, what they've been given by the buyer but also go back and say please we want this information confirmed by your accountant so they will know exactly how it needs to to appear because mm. that contract is technically their um evidence most times because a lot of them are not doing um declarations of trusts you know having those uh, registered and and so forth so it does need to be very accurate yeah 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 yep. okay so something a little bit more straightforward uh, and we see it quite often. We get offer and acceptances that are come through in two names where there's been no election made as to whether it goes as joint tenants or tenants in common. Mm-hmm. Is that a problem? Um, relatively no, uh, because we can ask the question and to see what their wishes are. And generally, it's viewed as joint tenants by Langate to start off with. But uh, if they want to change it to tenants in common, as long as they have um, same equal shares because uh, joint tenants is equal shares. Um, it's not an issue. If they change that, then we would, um, if it's still between them and they change their shares, uh, then we would go down the path of a substitution against transfer substitution form that they will complete allocating their shares in, within the same contract. That's not a problem. So if they're doing it all through the transaction, it, it can be handled. So if two unrelated people mm-hmm. were buying a property, they put their names on the offer and acceptance, mm-hmm. didn't make an election, and then decided they were going to purchase it as 70-30, mm-hmm. would there be possible double duty involved there? Mm, good question. Mm. Mm. If they weren't related, so this was a business, or could they still be a defecto? Uh, no, let's say that their two mates got together mm. and decided they were going to buy a property mm-hmm. and then suddenly one person needs to tip in more money. Yeah. And, uh, and they take 70% and the other person takes 30%. Yeah. Yeah, that could possibly be an issue. Mm. I don't know whether their substitution would work for that yeah. transaction. Mm. Yeah. have to look into that one. Yes, yes. Yeah. The reason for the question is, wasn't to stump you. It was just to say that there's a, there's a box on the, on the offer and acceptance mm. to choose joint tenants or tenants in common. And if yep. it's a tenants in common, choose the, the uh, level of shareholding. Mm-hmm. It's there for a reason. Right. 
use yeah, it. Especially on the new on the new uh, ONAs now, which uh, they didn't have that on the on the previous one. So this is definitely specific for for that. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. Let's roll down to the title description. So lot plan volume folio. And we were just talking about a transaction that has come across your desk just before, one that where the title hasn't yet issued. So in instances where the titles haven't issued, what should go in the lot in the title description area? The proposed lot number mm-hmm. or the uh, plan that is um, the proposed plan, mm-hmm. whether it's been already lodged with Langate or not. And then typically you'd see the, um, the volume of folio left blank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then the notations about issuer titles. Because sometimes we see that the offer and acceptance on those sorts of transactions come through with the old, the, the original title on there, mm. don't we? And and that's kind of like, no, that's not what we're transferring. That's correct, yeah. Uh, it can cause problems if the um, client is, or the buyer is getting a loan because the buyer, um, their lender and we just had this happen just recently, issued loan documents and mortgage documents based on the information that was on the contract. Uh, so they're, paying, buying, <laughs> they're buying the parent title in this case because you know, was, that was the details that were on the contract. So they've had to do a variation to take those details off. But yeah, I mean, you could see um, that it was a proposed lot number and that and they inadvertently had put those details in. But I uh, just don't think if they had maybe noted, noted it as parent lot, uh, the volume folio as parent on there, probably okay because at least it was a… At least know, it would have alerted Alerted everybody, everybody yeah. yeah. But yeah. when you don't do that, then it does um, obscure it somewhat. Yeah. But from a, I think from the lender's side more, it was more of a problematic on that end. Yeah. 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 So um, these are things that just are, are basic little things that if they're done right, the transaction becomes nice and simple and straightforward mm-hmm. and if they're done wrong it just adds to the already like the stress of the transaction fair, fair to say for sure yeah yeah more paperwork has to be um, done and signatures together yeah so we see some funky things on the offer and acceptance in in the lender in the, the finance clauses applicable box mm-hmm. my belief is less is more so rather than putting all sorts of funky things in there, you know, things like uh, lender as per whatever the buyer wants or there's weird things written in there, right? Mm. Just leave, just put the bare minimum in there. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And what's your bare minimum, Pete? My bare minimum is usually, I would usually write in there, latest time within 21 days of acceptance or 28 days mm-hmm. of acceptance, whichever. Mm-hmm. That's all I'd put in there. Yep. Or uh, I'd even go the other way and just get them to initial. That's it. Because then all the definitions, which are on page two of the offer and acceptance, come into play. That's correct. And it's yep. nice and simple. You're not having to fight over, you know, well, you know, what do you mean? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. I mean, that if you do leave it blank, that's what it would just default to those um, conditions on the back of that O&A, so... Mm. Yeah, correct. Okay. So, uh, special conditions. Let's talk special conditions. What are the what are the funky special conditions that you've seen? Oh, well, your standard ones on residentials uh, are going to be your building, major structural building inspections and your um, timber pest mm-hmm. inspections, um, seller warranties, and maybe your state government regulations. Those are fairly stock standard mm-hmm. on residential properties. Then if you're going into ones that you're buying to develop, you might have a due diligence 
condition in there. Mm-hmm. So with those special conditions, like well, let's talk about the timber pest inspection and the structural inspection. What would your advice be to to real estate agents, or would would your advice be to write your own condition or to use like a, a standard clause? What's your well, what's your if you're preference? dealing with a if it's a rewa contract that you're dealing with and you're, you're going through a real estate office, they have um, professional annexures that have been written in to cover pretty much uh, aspects. But if you want something extra, because obviously they're more designed for the sellers um, and you feel like you need some additional protection, they want anything additional to it, the standards and you could um, request some further information be added to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just really depends on the situation, the property that you're buying. Mm. Uh, if it's something a little bit unusual, not the norm, yeah. So it's it's quite um, subjective in that respect. Those annexures, they've they've got a box in them where that you can, if you don't put anything in there, the report is just relates to the house. Correct. Just just to the house. Mm-hmm. Main residence. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you might have retaining walls mm. um, that are definitely structural. Mm-hmm. If you don't put retaining walls in there. It's not included. If you've got um, any sort of attachment to the home, like any sort of lean-tos, like uh, carports, a lean-to carport, a lean-to patio pergola, those sorts of things, if they're not included, they're not included in the report. So our recommendation is is whatever's there, put it in that that box. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And very often we see them, those boxes come through as blank. Oh, majority. Yeah, yeah. 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 And sure. then, and then somebody, the inspector goes out and and says, "Oh, well, the retaining wall is just about to fall over." Mm-hmm. It's kind of to the buyer, bad luck. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I mean, the real estate agents are there for the seller's behalf. They represent the seller, so their contracts are uh, more reliant on. Uh, Beneficial, mm. you know, means to them more so than the buyer. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. And if they, you don't have a buyer that's a first-time buyer too, that doesn't really understand um, all the implications and and what should be covered and not covered, they they're just going to rely on the real estate to put in the information. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah. And we see it, and maybe we can talk about this at another time. We see a lot of uh, buyers who think that they're covered for stuff that's not covered. When it comes to structural inspections, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, that's because the reports include a lot of maintenance items in there, and they um, don't understand that these items are not part of that annexure. Yeah, it's only major, and it's also they might have minor defects which are not covered. So it's uh, yeah, it's a bit of a education for them. It's really important that people read those annexures properly. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a contract, and you need to read it. Yeah. Um, I get that most people don't read the general conditions. We've got a pretty, like we're, our nose is in those general conditions pretty much every day of the week. But uh, for, for most buyers, I understand that they wouldn't read them. But for the contract itself, I think it's important that buyers have a good hard read of it. For sure. Yep. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, in terms of vent, seller warranty, let's talk about that for a second. The seller warrants that all gas, electrical and plumbing appliances shall be in working order at settlement. That's a tr- pretty common clause, yeah? Yeah. Yeah. You roll through to settlement uh, day two or three days before settlement and there's some PowerPoints that aren't working. What can the buyer do? 
Oh, when they've done their final inspection, obviously you list the items that they um, have concerns with. And if they're uh, part of that uh, next year, that um, seller warranty, which typically is your gas, electrical and plumbing items, then you'd be looking at the seller to have those rectified prior to settlement. And uh, if not, then they can negotiate maybe a credit of the cost so that the uh, buyers will get the benefit of that and be able to take care of it mm. the settlement. Um, but um, it's just really important that they do that final inspection possibly um, within that five business days mm. of settlement um, just so that it gives everybody a bit of time to get things done if they need to. Mm. Mm. And let, let's say the buyer, uh, the seller goes, nah, I'm not fixing that up. Mm. Does the buyer have the right to hold settlement up? No, unfortunately, it's not a special condition. It's a warranty only. Uh, with the warranties, they do survive settlement and they can be actioned uh, by a legal process mm. post-settlement if um, the buyer is out of pocket and it could be deemed that it was at fault at the point prior to settlement and then uh, they would have to pursue the seller if the seller is not willing to rectify it post-settlement. I mean, it's still a responsibility of the seller, but yeah, it's sometimes very difficult to get them to do anything once it's settled. So the only avenue they would have would be illegal channels through the small claims court, mm. uh, depending obviously on the size of the um, of the claim, but uh, and what the issues are. Yep. So your advice there is be proactive for the correct. buyer. Yeah. Mm. Correct. Yeah. Yep. And also, you know, depending on the item, if it's just very minor, uh, we do see sometimes buyers get a little bit pedantic and they want that property to be in kind of like pristine conditions as if it was a, a home that, um, you know, a new home and their house could be, you know, 20, 30, 40 years old and they're going to have maintenance items. So, you know, expectations, I think, have to be realistic when it comes to these type of items and and uh, for them not to be so stressed out at the end mm. with it. Because, um, it, yeah, it can get pretty stressful when um, you, you get to that final inf- inspection date and, Things are not quite exactly how you thought they were going to be. But I think the big uh, ticket would be making sure that the property itself is the same as when you put the offer in, that there's nothing very missing out of that. You know, that's probably your, one of your big items. Mm-hmm. Yeah, holes bashed in doors. Uh, and... Windows missing, doors missing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that graf- happens, doesn't graf- it? Graffiti, uh, the hot water system's been taken. You know, <laughs> the pipes around the wall, the golden pipes, <laughs> the copper pipes are gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> on that, top of it. That actually happens, doesn't I, it? Yeah, it does happen. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure we could fill up a whole podcast about you know, the <laughs> stuff that happens after uh, at pre-settlement inspections. My mm. God, yes. Okay. There's a clause on, uh, or there's a part of the offer and acceptance relating to GST. Whose responsibility is it to to complete that? Well, the seller's responsibility mm to complete that section. And we do often see that section now blank, not completed at all. Um, there is a blurb on that, uh, underneath that box to say that if none of the boxes are ticked, then it's deemed to be no. Mm. But yeah, sometimes it's a little bit tricky for us if we're dealing with um, vacant land or new builds and don't know whether the seller, um, depending on who we're acting for, of course, uh, if that seller actually is required to pay or not. So if if the real estate agent chose not to complete that 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 section on behalf of the seller or mm. didn't get the seller to make the declaration and the property rolled through to um, after settlement and fa- there's a potential that the, the well it's a buyer the buyer is supposed to be um, withholding and mm-hmm. paying that GST component mm-hmm. the problem lies that 
they weren't given that information and uh, the supplier details or anything like that to be able to, to make that payment. So at the end of the day, the seller's still responsible mm. for it. But the, if, if it wasn't actioned, mm. there'd be a lot of bad juju oh, come, sure. come down on everyone in, involved in the transaction, including the real estate agent. Oh, yes, definitely. Yeah. Because yeah. it's important that at the point of filling out the offer and acceptance, they make their client clear that they have to make a declaration that it's either yeah. GST yeah. inclusive or not. Yeah. I mean, it just, um, it's too bad that O&A is actually, has that extra verbiage there because if it wasn't there, it would make them, it would force them to complete that section mm. because I don't know whether it's just the fact that it, because it covers them in that, that the wording, mm. they feel like it doesn't have to be, you know? Yeah. So it does make it tricky. Um, if those words weren't there, we'd be going back and saying, you know, this offer and acceptance not completed. Mm. Yes, it's it has the potential to come uh, to turn bad pretty quickly. Yeah. Well, I mean, with, with our clients, we have those notations on our documentations. Uh, we make them declare to us if we're acting for a seller, mm. whether there is GST uh, implications or not, mm. uh, regardless of what type of transaction we're dealing with. Just so that we have a clear understanding and our clients have confirmed it to us. It's just working for a buyer. It, it, we would ask the same question. If we're not sure, especially if we're dealing with vacant land or a new built property, that we can see it's not – if it's residential and it's been lived in, we won't even question it. But if it's, you know, it's ambiguous if it is vacant land and if um, that could apply and if the seller is registered for GST, if it's an enterprise, you know, we, we won't ask those questions directly – to the sellers or the real estate agent, but we will ask their settlement agent to um, give us a confirmation of their, so that we actually have something mm, to mm, cover us mm. if we're acting for a buyer. Yep. Yeah. Yep. The other day we, we saw an, a, a contract come through and it said um, uh, subject to vacant possession. You don't have to write that on there, do you? No. Because it's, it's automatic in your joint forms that yeah. you are going to get vacant possession. I think yeah. it's baked into the first mm two lines of the contract. It's, mm -hmm. uh, like, and I, we see a lot of real estate agents writing stuff on contracts that just add ambiguity to, to a contract. Where I think we saw, saw one, what was that one a couple of days ago that you showed me? And it was just like, what does this actually mean? My, my advice to real estate agents is less is more. Mm. It, unless something absolutely has to be said, just leave it to the yeah. joint form of general conditions and the, and the definitions. If, if something needs to be said, there's probably a, a, spe, a an annexure, a re-annexure to, to handle it, use yeah. that. Yeah. I, I, I probably would understand there's probably a tenant in that property that needs to vacate, and that's maybe why they put that in there to cover because it's generally, yeah, you don't see it unless there's something to do with the lease. And if just, just leave it off. Yeah. Because th then as soon as you put it on there, it's, well, were they saying that the tenant could stay there and uh, what? No. Just leave it off and just mm. then we know it's got to be vacant possession. Yeah. Is there anything else? Oh, uh, you know. With I know the... you ran this through chat GPT about 15 times to make sure that. <laughs> you're not asking me any of the questions. Oh, <laughs> just a few. Getting, I knew I'd get into trouble. <laughs> no, I did my homework last night actually. But um, I'd say that uh, if at all possible and you have time that – Buyers should run their contracts through a professional, yep. a settlement agent, before submitting that offer. Yep, yep. Just to make sure that they are covered. 
um, and everything's in line for them. I mean, it still goes for the sellers. Some sellers would like that service also to make sure that they haven't missed anything. But yeah, but primarily the buyers, you know, and especially when you're dealing with first time buyers, um, because once that contract is um, accepted, it's binding, horses bolted, it's really not too easy to unravel things, uh, make changes once they've signed it. So, and you know, WA, it's not a clean enough state. So, yeah, that was you know. one of the questions I was going to ask you, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. it was. There's no cooling off period. No cooling here. off period here in yeah. WA. So your conditions are essential that you mm. have the right conditions for your contract and for your situation yeah. you're in. And so the offer and acceptance, when it, it becomes a contract the moment that is accepted by all parties. Correct. Yeah. And that's something that I think some people in the East sort of see that the, the offer and acceptance is just the sort of like a, an exchange of like email or information and it's not actually a contract. The moment it's accepted, it's a legally binding contract. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And your only protections are any annexures and the and the conditions that are in favour of either the buyer or seller. They're the, they're the protections. That's that, right. Yes. Yeah. So sign it with care. Mm. Yeah. Do your due diligence first. Oh, well, that's a good <laughs> idea. Yes. Anything else? Uh, yeah, when in doubt, I mean, seek legal advice and professional advice from an accountant or a solicitor if you're not sure which is the best road for you. Your settlement agent's there to help you, but they can't provide legal advice unless they're lawyers, but they can definitely guide you in the right direction. So, you mm. know, maybe ask the questions first before getting into something, then that'll save you some headaches down yeah. the road. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Franka, this has been uh, terrific. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're very busy and dragging you out of the office is just, just about impossible, but you... It's a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, th thank you so much for taking your time. Uh, you are a wealth of knowledge and uh, to people that uh, the people that need to get hold of you and want to ask you more questions about uh, about uh, property settlements and filling out the offer and acceptance, how would they get hold of you? Well, they can call me directly at Resi Convincing. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yes, yes. I, have, I have a direct line. They can... What's, uh, the, what's your number? Oh, nine, well, what is my number? Nine four five nine double O double four. That's the main one. That's it. Yeah, that's the office number. As I call the office number, they'll just plug you in. Yes, yes. <laughs> Don't call me directly because I could be doing settlements. <laughs> Frankie just doesn't get off the phone. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> All right. Frankie, thank you so much for uh, your time. Welcome, Pete. Um, and uh, thanks for tuning in. This has been another episode of the WA Property Q&A podcast, and I'll look forward to another episode next week. Cheers. And that wraps up another episode of the WA Property Q&A. We hope you found our discussion valuable and gained some valuable insights into the world of property buying in Western Australia. Remember, while we strive to provide useful information, it's crucial to consult with the appropriate professionals before making any investment decisions. Don't forget to tune in next week for another exciting episode where we continue to unravel the mysteries of the WA property market. If you have any questions or topic suggestions, feel free to reach out to us. Until then, happy property hunting and remember to seek the right advice for your personal circumstances. Thank you for listening.